All right, well, we are going to spend the next uh, four weeks of Advent uh, leading up to Christmas looking at four different songs of Jesus. Uh, we, um, we just finished a series called Meals with Jesus, and now we're going to be in a short series called Songs of Jesus. Um, it's in the beginning of Luke's gospel. There are actually four beautiful songs of praise about the birth of Christ, and we're going to start this morning with a song from Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. You can find that in your bulletin or in a Bible or on a phone, whichever you prefer. And as you're turning there, I want you to think, um, have you ever been so excited about something that it made you sing? Something so excited that it made you sing, we just couldn't help it. Could have been something that is, you know, maybe it was Thanksgiving dinner. You started singing about the meal, you were so excited about it. Um, it's no secret that I love Christmas, I love Christmas music. We start Christmas music in our house on November 1st. We are those kind of people. And uh, having said that, as someone who loves Christmas music, and just flat out honesty, a lot of the Christmas music uh, that is on the radio uh, just isn't that great. Uh, there are some classics for sure, and I'm not talking about any of the great Christmas hymns we sing as a church, but there are some that are just sort of full-on commercial Christmas music that gets played on the radio. It's just not that good. Um, but there are some classics. And one of the classics um, that when you hear it, it comes on and you know just with the, with the first note that's played um, that you just know that it's Christmas time. You know that the time has arrived. And that song is, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. Okay, written and recorded in 1963, the golden era of Christmas music. Um, it's got brass, it's got, you know, Williams classic, almost like crooner-like voice. It's upbeat and you hear it and you just know, all right, it's on. It's Christmas time. And this is how it starts. We can actually all sing it together. We're not going to do that. Everyone's like, what? what? Listen to how this starts. It's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And we just go on and on, right? Almost as, as you hear it, you're envisioning, you know, Fifth Avenue, New York City, it's snowing and people are carrying their shopping bags around and there's like a sleigh going by. It's just this idyllic Christmas scene, right? But it's a song that's written out of this overflow of joy that, hey, it's Christmas time and it's the best time of the year and it's here. And he just overflows with joy into this song. Mary's doing something similar in our passage. A little bit of context. Just prior to our passage, Mary has been told that she will give birth to Jesus, who is the Son of the Most High. She then visits her cousin Elizabeth, who confirms this good news, and then Mary breaks into song. So this is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. 
And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of it, for speaking to us. And we ask you to do that just now. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, two headings this morning as we look at Mary's song. I want to talk about the inspiration for her song and the lyrics of her song. The inspiration of her song and the lyrics of her song. First, the inspiration of her song. What inspired this? Um, To understand her inspiration, we need to understand some of the immediate context of what's going on and also maybe the bigger picture of what God is doing. All right, so, so what just happened? Um, If you have a Bible, you can look up a few paragraphs above our passage and see that the angel Gabriel just visited Mary and told her that she will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Jesus and that he'll be great and he'll be called Son of the Most High, to which she responds beautifully, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Um, Just clarification, maybe depending on your background, uh, we don't worship Mary. Uh, We worship Jesus, Uh, but it is, you can understand why people lean that way. Her faith is beautiful here. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Beautiful faith that Mary responds with. And then what she does, she travels what could have been as far as 100 miles to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth was just months away from giving birth to John the Baptist. We'll talk about that more in the weeks ahead. And as Mary walks in, pregnant with Jesus, John the Baptist, while still in his mother's womb, leaps for joy. And Elizabeth cries out that Mary is the mother of her Lord. Once again, confirming that Jesus, the Son of God, would take on flesh and be born of her. That's what just happened. And it's this confirmation of good news that causes Mary to burst forth into song here. That's the immediate context. What's the bigger picture of what God is doing here? What is God doing? God is making good on his promise to send a rescuer to his people. And this promise dates way, way back into what we know as the Old Testament. The very beginning of the Bible. We heard this today in our Advent reading, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 in particular, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman... Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Um, Okay, in Genesis, God is speaking to the serpent there. And God is saying there is going to be a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. But ultimately, the offspring of the serpent will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. Translation, God is saying, and this is almost immediately after Adam and Eve have plunged all of humanity into sin and darkness, God is saying that he will send a rescuer to make things right again. Scholars talk about Genesis 3.15 as the first pronouncement of the gospel in the Bible. It's the first promise that Jesus would come and save his people. Genesis 3.15. Fast forward. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7, part of which is our memory verse uh, for this series of Advent. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is talking about Jesus. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who will be on the throne of David forever. He is the one who will rule with justice and righteousness forever. And he's going to be born of the Virgin Mary. What is God doing? He's making good on his promise to rescue his people. Um, I know not everyone has a great holiday all the time. You may have had a great Thanksgiving. may have been not so great. Um, one of the things that I always enjoy about Thanksgiving weekend, um, in addition to great food and leftovers and all that, is the unimaginable amount of sports on TV. Um, we have watched so much soccer and football, or football and football, uh, depending on where you're from, these past few days. It's just, it's been amazing. Um, and one of the things that's interesting to watch before a big rivalry game um, is the trash talk between opponents. Um, it gets especially interesting when a player from one team guarantees a victory against a player from, or against a, an, another team. You know, it's a few days before they get a camera in front of them as they're in the locker room and someone says something like, hey, I, I guarantee that we're going to win this weekend. And it just seems like when that happens, it's all over Sports Center, it's all over the news, and inevitably that team ends up losing. It's almost like they're cursing themselves, you know, by making the guarantee. But there's one really famous situation where it went the other direction. Uh, Michigan, Ohio State played football in 1986. This game has come to be known as the guarantee game uh, because their quarterback, Jim Harbaugh, who is now the coach, um, guaranteed victory over Ohio State. He said, quote, I guarantee we will beat Ohio State in Pasadena, end quote. And sure enough, Michigan beat Ohio State 26 to 24. And that just, it, it changed, it, I read an article how it changed these programs. Of course, it changed the scope of that season. But it, it was the guarantee game. He boldly guaranteed it, and he delivered. God boldly guaranteed that he would send a rescuer to crush the head of the serpent and to save his people. And he did it. He did it. And I realize I may sound like a broken record because we saw something very similar last week in our text, but I will say it again. God keeps his promises. He does what he says he'll do. It's all over the Bible. Some even talk about the Old Testament as promise and the New Testament as fulfillment. That promise and fulfillment frame even how we understand the whole of the Bible. Um, he is faithful. He does what he says he will do. And oh how we need to sit in this. Because this is not the world that we traffic in. Um, one, my youngest child right now is really into Legos. And so we have this, this bin of Legos that sits out in our den against the wall. And, and she'll just go grab it and I'll, and I'll be doing something... Up in the kitchen, she'll grab it. She'll say, Dad, can, can we play Legos right now? Can we build something? Can we build a tower with the Legos? And I'll say, not, not now. We'll do it in a little bit. Let me do this first. We'll do it in a little bit. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've said that to her and not made good on it. Just gotten distracted, done something else. 
right? We don't do this well. Um, So much of our heartache in life is from broken promises. And sometimes uh, the wounds of a broken promise can cut so deep that we never really heal. Feels like we're always going to have a limp that we're going to have to walk with because of either a promise that we've broken or one that's been broken to us. Um, It hurts. Feels lonely to have a promise broken. It feels like you can't trust anybody. You question everything. You feel rejected. You feel shut down. It's, it's just the worst. Broken promises hurt. And that is not how God works. God keeps his promises. He'll do everything that he says he will do, including sending his own son, born as a human baby, to rescue us and restore all of creation back from sin and evil. And that's really good news. And that good news is the inspiration for Mary's song. And when she breaks out in song, what does she sing about? Let's look at the lyrics of her song. The lyrics of Mary's song draw a consistent and beautiful and very upside down theme of scripture. It's that of God exalting the humble and humbling the proud. And Phil Riken highlights these two categories in his commentary. So let's think about her song through that grid. So first, it's a song about exalt, God exalting the humble. It's a song about God exalting the humble. Look at your passage again, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Okay, so the mighty, holy God, where does that God look? On the humble estate of his servant. And Mary is the picture of a humble estate. Riken says, quote, Mary herself was the perfect example No one was lowlier than she was. A poor young peasant girl from Nazareth. She was nobody from nowhere and she knew it. Nobody from nowhere. And now what happened? She's visited by angels. Her cousin's telling her that she's carrying the Son of God in her womb. And this humble woman will now be called blessed by all generations. Uh, God has a pattern in His Word of taking people on the margins those who are not particularly influential or powerful or connected and using them for amazing things. Psalm 113, verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Right? Exalting Him. He's high up. What does He do? Verse 6. Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. God is so high, so mighty, so powerful, so big. And what does he do with all that power? He leverages it to help those who cannot help themselves. It's what we see in our passage with Mary. A few weeks ago, my family and I traveled up to Richmond, Virginia, so I could hobble through the Richmond Marathon. And as I was running, um, I saw a man pass me. I saw a lot of people pass me. Uh, but one man in particular, when he passed me, um, was pushing what appeared to be his adult son 
in a special wheelchair designed for, for running in events like this. Uh, presumably his adult son had some sort of health condition that made mobility, especially running, a challenge for him. So his, his dad was pushing him. And I looked at this man pushing his adult son as they went past me, and I, thought, I couldn't help but think about the bigger picture of what was going on here. You know, if you think about training to run a marathon, and you know, many of you have done that, are doing that currently. Um, you know, it typically takes you know, three to four months to, to train, uh, to get into shape for that and to be well prepared. And, uh, and you spend these hours training because you want it to benefit you on race day. Um, and in many ways, it's, it's a very sort of uh, self-focused, self-centered experience. You could just ask my wife about that. Um, but it's sort of all about you and optimizing your health and your condition and your fitness and getting um, your situation ready to be the best on race day. And you can get really obsessive about it, getting the perfect nutrition, the perfect lightweight carbon fiber plated shoes, uh, the perfect amount of sleep leading up to the race. Um, also, you can perform your best and get the best result for you on race day. And then here goes this man pushing his adult son. And I'm sure he did all those things. He had to train, probably had great shoes. I don't, I don't think I noticed. Great nutrition, all of that. Um, but then to run the race while pushing another adult, suddenly all that training, um, all that potential for himself to run a great race is then all poured out for the sake of his son. If he was not pushing his adult son, who knows how fast this guy could have run this race. But he leveraged all of his strength for the benefit of his son. This is what we see with God. God uses his strength, his unmatched power to help those who cannot help themselves. He uses power to exalt the humble. And this shows us the heart of God. This shows us what his kingdom is like. And it's so different from the world that we live in. Uh, just think about our world. It, it's performance. Achieving, networking, resumes, upward mobility, success, proving ourselves, constantly getting more and better. And it's completely exhausting. No one likes this. It's exhausting. Uh, you never achieve enough or make a great enough name for yourself. It, it's, it's all a lie. And that's not the dynamic of the kingdom of God. Uh, so if you, if you feel like you can't keep up, uh, if you feel like you can't perform, like you can't achieve, like you don't have a network, like you can't do enough, like your resume is just pretty unimpressive, like your upward mobility is not really upward or mobile, um, if, if that's where you find yourself, maybe even if you feel like you're on the margins, margins of your neighborhood, of your city, of our church even, if that is where you find yourself, Know that God sees you and even fixes his gaze on you this morning. God loves the margins. God loves the humble. He loves to take unexpected people and call them into beautifully unexpected things. And if you're a follower of his, um, do you see how this reorients your vision? It reorients your priorities, where your eyes fall. If his eyes fall to the poor and the marginalized and those on the fringe, um, those who are not conquering all aspects of life and society, then that's where our eyes should fall as well. God exalts the humble. 
And we see this in Mary's life and situation. And she's tapping into this rich theme of scripture as she sings about it. But there's more to her song. It's not just a song about God exalting the humble. It's also a song about God humbling the proud. Look at verse 51. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to our offspring forever. So this works both ways. This is where all the talk about God exalting the humble should make us all feel a little squirmy uh, because he also see that he humbles the proud. And there are some specific categories in our text in which he does his work of humbling us that are highlighted in these verses and, and Riken draws attention to these in his commentary. He humbles the pride of intellect, the pride of position, and the pride of wealth. Um, all things that are really important to us. Intellect, position, wealth. Let's look at each of these. He humbles us in our pride of intellect. Look at verse 51. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Um, those who pride themselves in knowing, in having right answers, and always being able to explain everything. I had a friend in college who is literally to this day one of the smartest people I've ever met. Just his, his mind was like an encyclopedia. I remember after dinner one night in the student center in college, we were sitting uh, watching Jeopardy, and, um, and, and he just starts answering all the questions of Jeopardy. Like boom, 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 boom. Before, anyone could, before the contestants could say, and he was looking at me answering all the questions, and he could have just kept going. This guy is one of the smartest people I know. He's brilliant. What a gift, right? To have a sharp mind like that. And what a temptation towards pride. And even finding your identity in knowing. In always having an answer. And always having to have an answer. Uh, but the upside down nature of God's kingdom is that sometimes he uses people who don't know all the answers. Uneducated. Those for whom it's hard to string words together. No degrees. He uses people like that. God humbles us in our pride of intellect. Uh, he humbles us in our pride of position. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Uh, these are those who bank it all on the status of their position. This could be anything from like a high level political office, uh, speaking specifically of kings in our passage, to like a much sought after management position in our place of work, to even something like the position of being a parent or working in a certain field or attending a certain school. Um, it's pride in resume or status or achievement, something you've earned. Um, and working hard, of course, to achieve a certain position is not a bad thing, right? What a gift to use your abilities and have those strengths and abilities be rewarded with a great, much sought after position. But oh, the danger in finding your identity in it, uh, where, where um, who we are is what we do. Um, and the haunting question is, what if it all came crashing down? What if that position came crashing down? It says he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Pride of position. It talks about pride of wealth. Verse 53 it says the rich he has sent away empty. And there are so many warnings in scripture about the dangers of wealth. Uh, it's spoken of as a blessing for sure. Uh, it's not wrong to have it. But there are a lot of warnings about it. Um, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Strong, strong imagery there. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, uh, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's dangerous, a lot of warnings. And it's always tempting when we think about wealth in the Bible to think about those with more means than you and, the, and the, how they really need to hear those passages. But this is for all of us to hear, right? Um, we so long for the sense of security that we think money can bring. We often build our lives around it, build our identity around it, put our pride in having it or how we use it. But just like that, God can send the rich away empty-handed. It's not going to last. Certainly won't benefit you in the next life. God humbles the proud, not just in a general sense, but in these very specific heart-level places of our intellect, our position, and our wealth. Why does He do that? He does that because He loves us. And He knows that intellect or position or wealth do not give us true life. Um, It is such an inkling of what we were actually made for. And so sometimes in His kindness He brings these things crashing down so we can see that He is what we really need. And that He alone is what we are really longing for and that He alone is the one who can satisfy us. And As Mary is singing this song in our passage, she's celebrating this beauty of humility and the very child that she is carrying will be the perfect embodiment of this humility. Uh, There's another song, a hymn about Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and it sings of him by saying, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Saying that Jesus became perfect humility. Fully God. Having the power of God and yet not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. He sets it aside in order to come and save his people. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is such an exclamation point of what salvation is all about, of what it means to believe. It is not about what I can do. Um, It's not about what what I can bring to the equation. It is 100% about what God has done for us by leveraging His power and might to come in perfect humility and to live and die on our behalf so that we might be rescued from sin and death. And have life with him as it was meant to be. This is the song that Mary is singing. Uh, It's ultimately a song of God continuing to fulfill his promise of rescuing his people through Jesus. And there's an invitation this morning for this to be your song as well. Uh, My family and I have been uh, watching the TV show The Voice a lot this season. Um, If you're unfamiliar, The Voice is a singing competition where uh, the contestants, the, the tryouts begin where they're on the stage. You've probably seen this before. Uh, and the four judges have their backs turned to them. 
And so the, the contestants just start by singing. It's really cool. So, so the judges can just evaluate the singing, the voice alone, and not the look or any of that. And if, and if the judge likes the contestants singing, they'll hit the, the button and their chair will turn around. And it's this really exciting moment. And what the judge is saying is, I like your singing and I want to work with you as a coach on this season to help you improve. And so the season goes on and these contestants are matched up with their coaches. And before they perform on each episode, it'll show the contestants and the coaches practicing together. And almost with every contestant, uh, one of the things that the coaches tell them is, um, you've got to, because they're, they're singing cover songs, right? Famous songs by famous musicians are cover songs, right? And so the, music, the, the, the coach will tell the, the contestant, you've got to make this song your own. You need to personalize this. You need to really own this for yourself. Make it more believable like you really believe this for yourself. And if you do that, it's going to be a great performance. Time and time again, they tell them this. Can you own Mary's song? Can you make it your own this morning? Um, Is it in your heart to sing about God in His power and might coming to rescue you who could not rescue yourself. Um, There's an invitation this morning to make this your song. And the way into this rescue, the way to truly know and love God is by falling down before Him in humility and asking Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's the offer before you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the good news that because of Your great love for Your people, You sent Jesus to come and take on real flesh to do for Your people what we could not do for ourselves. To to live a perfectly righteous life. Fulfilling all the requirements of Your good and perfect law. Never sinning in thought, word, or deed. And then to go to the cross to pay not for His sin, but for our sin. Taking all the wrath and condemnation that we deserve upon Himself. And three days later, rising again, walking out of the tomb. Father, this is ours by faith. Would you give us the gift of faith this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.